I was told off by the senior partner for typing my own um, papers and not sending it to a secretary. And I thought that this was the uh, the way of the world was changing and actually we should type our own papers on our own personal computers. Um, and that the days of the secretary were, were in a traditional sense, were probably numbered. Um, the uh, the senior partner at that stage was disgusted at my thoughts that that was the case. And I, I could see that that technology was fun, it was interesting, and it was um, certainly something that fitted well with the balance of having a young family. So I have three young, uh, three, they were young then. On today's edition of the podcast, we are talking to Sarah Lawson, the CISO at UCL. This is Tech Talks, your twice-weekly technology podcast with myself, David Savage, powered by the Harvey Nash Group, where we bring you interviews with leaders from across our industry and a bit of technology news. Joining me today, a little later than we originally planned, is Akish. I must apologise for being a little bit later than we had originally planned, mate. Uh, that's all right, mate. You ran a marathon yesterday, so I'll let you off. <laughs> I was I was actually having a little nap. Mm, well, I'll, I'll let you off, mate. I think I think you deserve it. If to be honest, I reckon if I ran a marathon, I wouldn't be awake still. <laughs> I, it was. It's not. I, I I felt all right. For anyone who's listening. Um, if you did the London Marathon, virtual or proper, one of the, I think somewhere like 80,000, 90,000 people yesterday. Uh, very well done. Congratulations. Um, unfortunately, my Saturday prep didn't go to plan. Um, instead of carb loading, I threw up and wasn't able to eat anything. And the morning of the marathon was wondering whether my breakfast would stay down or not. So I spent a bit, felt felt a little bit fragile running the marathon and had little little low energy reserves. So today I've been a little bit sleepy to be honest i think i think you deserve it mate i think you should uh, <laughs> yeah you should get all the rest that you can get at the moment and well done you by the way Dave. thanks uh, thanks yeah. it was it was well it was good you. to do it for charity you know what this is very this is incredibly sad maybe it's because i was tired um i watched the highlights last night mm-hmm. on the bbc and i got a little bit teary highlights of what of the marathon oh right highlights of the marathon oh, right. yeah there was something that, that someone said to me it was like isn't it amazing to be out on this course and all these people running oh. to help other people? And I was oh. like, oh, that's true. Basically, everybody does it for charity. Everybody's yeah. doing it for something other than, you know, they're doing it for someone else. And actually, in my slightly kind of exhausted, fragile state, I, I got a bit teary. Mm. <laughs> no, definitely. They're doing it for charity. And also, a lot of people are doing it to, yeah, well, I would argue some people are, have dual uh kind of motives bit of charity and you know to get your own pb i think but anyway yeah that's, yeah, that's but, just that's just me as a non-runner you know well no. mate enter enter you get a whole year is plenty of time enter a whole year I'll, I'll probably need a year to finish it mate you won't see me for a no, year no, no, no. <laughs> I'll, I'll give, st- give us I'll still be near House of the Parliament. <laughs> give, us, give us three or four months. We'd, we'd whip you into shape. Oh, God. Imagine that. Well, you never know. You never know. Crazy things have happened, eh? <laughs> well, you know what the London Marathon does? What does it do? It takes in iconic London landmarks. Mm, of which? UCL is definitely an iconic London, maybe not a landmark, but institution. Yeah, I mean, it, it's propped up on some of these um, silhouettes and stuff that you see as backgrounds and things, right? You can always spot kind of the UCL dome. Can you call it a dome? 
It almost looks like a temple, doesn't it? Temple, yeah. It looks yeah. C- kind of Romanesque. Yeah, I know. Um, I, I don't really know how you describe it, really. But um, yeah, there we go. But it's today's been... guest is. <laughs> today's guest is sarah lawson she's the CISO of ucl um so we'll we'll get stuck into the interview um whether it's a dome or a temple maybe if she listens she can tell us say akish mm. um i will be back with some comments on it afterwards so today i'm chatting to sarah lawson sarah you're the CISO at ucl yes i am i have been here for four months so I'm a relatively new CISO, so Chief Information Security Officer for UCL, and I'm very proud to be here. New CISO in terms of the university, certainly not a new CISO uh, in terms of your career. You've got a wealth of experience from a lot of different environments. So um, before anything else, let's 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 kind of pick up on that. I mean, what what's your journey into UCL and, and to this point in your career? Uh, yes, it's been quite a journey. So um, I was not destined to do anything to do with information security or IT. Um, so I started in law a very, very long time ago. And I was divorcing people and working on domestic violence, which is completely different. Um, I then had children and uh, got into technology. And I started at the University of Oxford 25 years ago now um, as a very new and um, untalented IT person who had no clue at all but enjoyed technology and enjoyed computers. Um, Working in a university environment at that stage, I was able to learn a huge amount of of stuff at a a fast pace, um, working with both students and academics and in a complex university and higher education environment. Um, And I quickly progressed through to become an IT manager. Then I realized that we needed some information security and I was able to progress into an information security role, working in research um, and in medical research, then progress that into more university um, focused um, information security. Um, And then finally, after 15 years, jumped back into um, the real world. So went back into um, um, enterprise as a CISO as my first chief information security role. Um, Really enjoyed that, but was then um, offered the opportunity to work for Gartner. And I worked for them for three and a half years, supporting other CISOs all around EMEA. So I worked across Europe, um, from Finland down to Israel, and I'm very proud of my air miles, um, and uh, supported um, other CISOs in all different types of industries. then came back into being a, um, an enterprise CISO and finally have arrived um, back at, at UCL, very much back in higher education, which I feel is a bit like coming home. Look, I think the first question to ask on that, because it, it, it's a fascinating story. Um, I mean, what, what you were doing, whilst it may be a long time ago, unfortunately, divorce. Uh, I mean, there's been a hell of a lot of people separating during the pandemic. So that would have been a busy time. But um, why why the move into technology? What was it at that point that made you go, well, this is something to be involved with, especially when you've gone from something that you know to something that you don't know? I think there was two things. I think at the stage that I left um, my career in technology, um, technology was starting to become into legal into legal practices. And we had our very first computers um, and I was told off by the senior partner for typing my own um, papers and not sending it to a secretary. And I thought that this was the uh, the way of the world was changing and actually we should type our own papers on our own. 
personal computers um, and that the days of the secretary were were in a traditional sense were probably numbered um, the uh, the senior partner at that stage was disgusted at my thoughts that that was the case and I, I could see that that technology was fun, it was interesting, and it was um, certainly something that fitted well with the balance of having a young family. So I have three young, uh, three they were young then, uh, three daughters. Um, and, you know, um, legal practice didn't fit so well, but uh, being an IT professional did. And, um, and I think I just, I kind of accidentally moved, but never regretted it. And you moved into, you, you said you moved into a CISO role in enterprise before you went to Ghana. Do you mind me asking what sector that was? It was in facilities management. So my two enterprise roles have been in facilities management. And uh, that involves mostly um, uh, cleaning, roads, man guarding, um, all sorts of um human centric style facility management for other businesses um uh, quite an interesting area because it's very low margin so like university sector it doesn't have a lot of money um so therefore you have to be quite innovative you have to think of ways of making people more secure and, and of enabling technology to work for those work across the world um but not at a huge cost and it's a very similar to higher education where we have to, you know, we're not a bank. We can't go out and buy the most greatest uh, product in the world. Um, or we have to encourage uh, vendors to support us in in what we're trying to do um, in other ways. So, you know, it's a, it's a fun environment because it's it's all about being innovative and, and trying to find ways of getting things to work in best practice, but not always as conventionally as you might. But you have come back to HE. Mm-hmm. And I suppose the point in that might be that enterprise, whilst that was varied, and it sounds like it was very interesting um, and diverse in its in its kind of complexity, HE is is a bit different, right? Um, as as an environment from an enterprise setting. HE is if you ever want to see every possible risk as an information security person, if you ever want to see every possible risk and application of technology in one place, then come to a higher education establishment. So um, as an information security person, one of the things I like is visibility. I like to be able to see what's going on. And in a in a normal enterprise, you will you will see a heartbeat of computers whirring and and people doing normal businessy stuff. So I can't actually see what they're doing, but I can hear. You know, you can see that kind of somebody's tapping an email, somebody's doing this. It's very very. You know, it's quite normal. In a, in a in a university, you have researchers doing the most bonkers things with the most strangest bits of, you, of of equipment you've ever seen. So it will be some of the oldest equipment that you've ever seen. Um, some of the equipment that will be working with a, in in any university um, will probably be older than some of the students that are actually currently working on them. You will see um, types of uh, technology innovation happening that you will never see in an enterprise because it's cutting edge. Um, and at the same time, we in our department have to think about well, how do we secure that? So we can't stop people, and we absolutely don't want to stop people. Our job is to really think about how can we keep all of that activity secure and how can we manage and, and um, 
you know, support the university to do its great stuff while keeping the cyber attackers out of the way. So it's really fun. It must be a quite, maybe not unique, but um, particular challenge to the HE sector where you've got this very diverse group of people, students and academics and the faculty who are all very different and all with very different aims. I suppose in enterprise, if I think about my organization, yeah, you've got people who have different job titles, back office, front office, whatever else. But largely speaking, from a security standpoint, um, I suppose that governance across that population is fairly homogenous. Maybe that's not the case in your environment because everyone is so wildly different. Yes, and it's always a balancing act between um, you, you, you want to standardise in, um, in some areas and you also want to enable innovation in others. So it's a very fine balance between um, um, enabling people to do the right thing, but also standardising where um, it makes perfect sense to do so. So it's a, a lot of it is about conversation. A lot of it is about is engaging with everybody in, in and around the university setting. And in an enterprise, you tend to have that enterprise stick to say, well, the boss says you've got to do this, so you've got to do this. Um, and effectively, if the CEO comes down and says, now you will do this, then most people will have to do it or they will no longer be part of the institution. Um, in in higher education, it's all about negotiation. So there is no big wieldy stick that we can we can use or, or we should use. It's about negotiation. It's about finding those risk levels. It's about understanding how to best manage. Um, and of course, there are best practices that we should follow. But um, all of that negotiation and really thinking about the problem provides us with the ability to to do some really good and innovative information security practice which you wouldn't get to do in an enterprise because it, it we have to think slightly differently and we have to engage with those around the university what 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 i mean can you talk about some of those innovations and and, and the best practice because because in my mind right i spent full disclosure i spent a year working in my students union i was elected to, to the student one of the student union uh sabbatical positions and my my view of the of the university which was essex was kind of like it moved from being of oh, the, there there is the university to it being it's almost like this federal structure where actually if you kind of think about it it's almost like italian um city states all slightly at war with each other for resources and i could kind of imagine that, that as a as a as a almost a group function or, or a university-wide function trying to impose best practice of, of, of cybersecurity, that it might be kind of like, let's let's stick a plaster on this bit and hope, hope that works for the time being and juggling resources. But what you're saying, the narrative sounds very different and it sounds like actually you're much more on the front foot than maybe that slightly naive uh, viewpoint would have. Yeah, and I think what we're trying to do, and and um, as a as a leadership team within the information security and and IT, what we're trying to do is to um, encourage that um, encourage difference, but also enable uh, the enable and encourage things to remain different. Now that sounds 
ridiculous. Um, but as an example, um, one of the things we're using in our information security is to get that heartbeat view of what the noise of IT looks like across the institution. So that's not snooping. What it is is just listening to the sounds, the movements and everything um, using artificial intelligence. So we're using the artificial intelligence tools that are on the market um, at the moment. And we, we listen to establish a heartbeat of what we would normally see technology doing within our institution. So we would listen to uh, or we would have a visible record of what normal looks like for UCL. And then we can see quickly when, when there is something that is abnormal. So using artificial intelligence, it will learn. It will learn that, you know, in the uh, computer sciences division, somebody will be exfiltrating a ton of stuff to China. But that's normal because that's allowed because we have a contract. We can always check, but we, we know that that's OK because that's something we can do. Now, in an enterprise, you would see that and you'd 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 scream and shut everything down and go, oh my goodness, we're being attacked. But actually in the university, many of our heartbeat noises are, you know, I feel like a university is continuously in atrial fibrillation. It's kind of never quite, it's not got a static heartbeat. Um, it, it's, it's, it's doing all sorts of interesting things. But as long as we know what that interesting stuff looks like, we can then use our intelligence to then hone in on areas where it looks really unusual. So we get to know what normal looks like and then we hone in on those areas and then we can go and approach those areas and go, are you really supposed to be doing this to Russia because this doesn't look right? Or, you know, is Bitcoin mining the thing that you're trying to do because this doesn't look right? Um, and those are the sorts of things that we can then have a discussion about. But it's not about blocking people from doing it to, into, to start with. However, what I would say is when there are some standard good practices, we do encourage standard good practices like, you know, multi-factor authentication. It's a no brainer. Just do it. <laughs> you know, it, it just helps. So where there are things like that, we try to encourage the university just to run using standardized ways of working, which are going to help them mm -hmm. to just stay safe. So it's not about just standing back and letting you do exactly what you want. We also have to think about, well, you know, there are some laws we have to comply with. Um, so regardless of how fun we want to be in a university, we do have to have things like data protection. So we do have to consider that. So we work uh, closely with the data protection team to ensure that we um, you know, manage the laws correctly and we manage our compliance correctly. So there are some red lines. Um, we, we can't let people do absolutely everything. But at the same time, we can use lots of innovation like artificial intelligence to help us to establish where that heartbeat sits. And it, it's, it's good fun. Now, look, uh, I think the last thing that I wanted to ask you would be to say, you've worked at Gartner, you've worked in enterprise, you've worked in HE. If you're talking to someone who's an up and coming security professional uh, and you're thinking about the fact that their skill set has to change rapidly in the in the current market and whatnot, and they might look at, at HE from the outside and and have the um, ill informed opinions that I have or had, uh, and think, oh well, surely it's surely it's not quite as progressive as working at a big enterprise because the big enterprise has got more money, right? It's going to be better tools and whatever else. What would you say to that person? What is it do you think about HE that actually? gives that person a better set of skills and sets them up for a better career working working in your environment? So I came back to HE having been in the enterprise of Gartner and um, I love every minute of it. And I would encourage people 
to to think about this as a career stepping stone. And the reason is, is because you will see every aspect of information security, if that's what you want to do. You can try every aspect of information security as part of an information security team. We have small teams. We're not enterprise level size. So we have small teams, which means that people get to do lots of fun stuff that they wouldn't normally do. So if you're a tier one analyst, you will not just be doing tier one analyst stuff. You might get to be involved in all sorts of other things if you're interested in being involved in all other other things. And that's what we try to encourage. We try to encourage a team response um, so that we have a broad breadth of knowledge across the whole of our teams. What that did for me when I was the University of Oxford was enable me to drive a career in a direction that I wanted so I was able to move my career just because I had such a breadth of knowledge and such a breadth of talent around me that I could then use that to um, move my career from basically um, the IT person in the corner or part-time I started part-time I did I had absolutely no knowledge of computers at all um, to you know 25 years later um, I'm the CISO for UCL. And that's all because in a university environment, you can learn so much in a very short time. Well, look, I, th- I think it's been fascinating to talk to you. I really appreciate you giving up some time this morning. And given that you're fairly new in the role, good luck. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I quite like the idea that uh, she was an untalented IT professional. I would say her career today would suggest otherwise. But I really do like the fact that um, that she emphasises that she really enjoyed it and she was keen to learn and that being a lawyer wasn't her, but being a tech professional was. Yeah. And she had a bit of foresight and undoubtedly being a lawyer and staying in, in legal practice probably would have been the more obvious routes to a successful career and money and whatever else mm. and technology at the time whilst growing would have been seen as more of the risk and obviously leaving something that you're qualified and have started doing and going and doing something that is totally new just mm. because you think it seems interesting in the way that that shows a hell of strength of character and conviction yeah it shows it, i think it just shows yeah and in and eager to challenge yourself really because i mean I mean, I don't, I don't know how fun it is to to be involved in divorce uh, disputes and you know marital laws and family and domestic violence that sort of thing. Um, it, it can't be the most uh, you know enjoyable stories to hear at work, I guess. But um, I, no, I guess, not. yeah, I mean, you know, you, you're probably uh, a bit freaked out at times. But I think that that movement to kind of technology has probably been a, a little bit of a just a bit of a, a fresh you know kind of um it's just a fresh start and and at that time i guess when she kind of threw herself into the the technology sector it was like you said you know seen as a little bit of a oh hang on is this here to stay what's going to happen um you know what the hell is cyber security information security whatever you want to call it um and i think it's it's just probably been a case that she's yeah she's just kind of dived in um you know, found her way around and is, is now, you know, at a very kind of reputable organization, um, institution as well. 
Um, and yeah, you know, she's the she's the main person uh, when it comes to cybersecurity, information security, and and the risks, and I guess the technology associated with it. Hmm. Mm, absolutely. I mean, she she likens HE, you know, to you know, if you ever wanted to work and see every potential risk come to HE and mm. kind of jumping to your end point there. Yeah. She is in this wonderful position where she does see a huge amount of variety from technology that's older than some of their students to the lating, latest rather cutting edge tech from yeah. scientists and the like. Yeah. So that that has got to be very exciting and rewarding. Which, which almost, right, it, it, it almost makes me think that it's probably different to let's say if you were doing a CISO role at a bank or, mm. uh, you know, a CISO role at a law firm even, you know, one of these big law firms, they all have. So I, I think the exposure you'd get is different. And because I guess in those sorts of organizations, your your kind of internal customers or your users, end users, are a specific type of person only. I guess your technology is geared towards it. Your security threats are geared towards it. Whereas... You know, you've got anywhere from a academic, you know, doctor, you know, fellow. Are they called fellows? Like all these people. I, that I do, think you do get fellows. In, fellows. In yeah, yeah, so. that, yeah, that sort of thing. And so you've got all, you've got that scale, and then you've got all the staff members, and then you've got some eighteen-year-old. Not even eight. Sometimes they're not even eighteen. They're seventeen when they start university, yeah, and, yeah. and are you know. Freshers. My goddaughter's my goddaughter's elder sister Tabitha has just gone to university in Paris and is seventeen because she's brand yeah. and gone a year early. Yeah, so you know you've got every every kind of I guess person you know um, from all different parts of life all trying to do one thing or another. Um, yeah, it must be interesting, right? She's probably, she's probably and, seen a lot of things. Uh, and let's face it, not just trying to do different things, hugely different expectations of technology as well. Mm. Because I'd imagine. I mean, even someone my age has a different expectation of tech than, say, the seventeen-year-old. Mm, yeah. Um, mm. I mean, I grew up. I, I I do remember dial-up and mm -hmm. waiting for, for for pictures to download line by line, and the excitement of of kind of uh, AOL popping up, and then well, I used MSN Messenger and yeah, stuff. Yeah, I did as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I remember the first time that I was behind the university firewall and going, oh my God, this is the fastest interconnection, internet connection ever. And now that idea is completely bizarre. Um, the thing is, I went to uni when there was no Wi-Fi. I went to uni and in our first year, um, we, in our rooms, we had to have those ethernet cables. And I remember, yeah, yeah, absolutely. You, you know, I remember having to, to ask my parents to buy me an ethernet cable which is three meters so it could go from the socket into my bed so when i wanted to watch a movie or you know um yeah or kind of move the laptop around oh, mate, I, did, I didn't have a laptop i had a desktop oh really yeah well yeah i mean th this is the other thing right we're talking about wi-fi one of mm. the trickiest things about wi-fi in, in a university setting is you've got listed grade whatever buildings mm. they have really thick walls mm. It makes Wi-Fi a flipping nightmare. So you get you get people who just expect Wi-Fi. Yeah, yeah. It's not yeah. it's not quite as easy as all that. Yeah, exactly. Some serious bricks and mortar have gone into yeah. Yeah, these these graded buildings. But then also on top of that, think about how many students. I mean, I know the pandemic's been a bit of a challenge. And even then, right, that's been a challenge to make sure that you know the the, the, the online students and all, everything's kind of looked after. But 
think about how many students at one time are probably using the network. Yeah. Right? And doing all sorts. You know, some people are studying, some people are watching Netflix, other people are probably trying to game. Um, you know, who knows? And what, what, what we do know about security is mm. you want something that's fairly easy to control and write policies and governance that kind of fits. And here's an environment where it's being used in any number of different ways from all sorts of different technologies. And, mm. and it must be an absolute nightmare in a positive way to find policies that fit in governance and, and whatnot. And, and it's, it's got to be a, a real steep learning curve. So you can totally understand how Sarah says that if you, if you want to learn actually this is an amazing environment mm, yeah i mean it, it cha- i guess it challenges um take, take your marathon for example right you ran yesterday it, it doesn't just challenge you physically it challenges you emotionally mentally um you know challenges kind of every part of i guess your body um and in the same way this probably challenges every part of her kind of career and knowledge and skills and yeah you know and she has to bring it all together in in various projects i assume so yeah interesting job um definitely ever-changing and yeah decent decent place right yeah absolutely and you know to think how far she's come from that position of being told off by someone who is disgusted by the idea that um you wouldn't send your papers to the secretary to to type up and to have that foresight as we said at the beginning just shows that mm. that, that belief and that foresight about actually what's the right environment for, you to be, for me to be working and really played off. I wonder if she's ever gone back to that guy, the the senior partner who's told her off. I wonder if he knows. I wonder if they're mates. Let us know, Sarah. <laughs> I'd be very surprised. I mean, part of me imagines that that person's probably passed away, but... <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> you can imagine. He's probably... I just... The way he's described, kind of, I, just, I can almost imagine him being kind of some law lord who mm. was already in his seventies or eighties, yeah, yeah, a, a long time ago, yeah, and would well, be and would be knocking around work far longer than he should have been anyway. Yeah, probably. And or, those attitudes, or, I might be entirely or wrong. He, or he's already in the um, in the south of France uh, on a yacht. That's and he, true. Yeah, he could and be, he, yeah. and he can't access tech talks. So yeah, got to see what happens there. Well, not unless his secretary brings him something. Yeah, probably. <laughs> Typed up. Right. Let's go to our advert break. When we come back, we're going to be talking about the tyranny of email. A couple of years ago, Michael and Jacob, two friends from London, were both thinking about their consumption and sustainability as a whole. Michael, a professional footballer at the time, realised he had no options when it came to sustainable sportswear. Overconsumption and underuse was all too common. Hilo was born a sportswear brand fighting for the planet by changing mindsets. They've started with a running shoe made with seven natural materials, and the shoe can be recycled at the end of its life. As a company, they've offset their carbon to beyond zero, making them carbon negative. You can find out more about Hilo and support their mission at hiloathletics.com. That's H-Y-L-O. We support the Hilo movement. Right, uh, this is an article, it's uh, an opinion piece, but I think it's quite relevant to everyone in work. Email is a zombie that keeps rising from the dead, the endless pursuit of inbox zero. As email looms omnipresent in the connected lives, is the quest for an empty inbox a noble pursuit or an an unwinnable war? Let me uh, read you a couple of paragraphs, Sakish. Last week, I asked my Twitter followers about their email inboxes. Author Mohammed Masood uh, Morsi likened his 
uh, to a Kalashnikov on semi-automatic. Nudge, 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 nudge. Human rights lawyer Diane Syed replied that hers functions as a to-do list that is emptied on the regular. And when editor Caitlin Chang revealed that her inbox um, is sitting at over 1,000 and counting, she says she only reads the ones that are at the top as they're probably most important, someone's response to her was, I threw up a little in my mouth. What is your attitude towards email? It is this thing that in this world where we're kind of moving towards teams and other connected, we, we try to encourage to not kind of spend as much time in email and it can be quite distracting. Yeah, I've just I've just opened up my inbox actually. Uh, I'm having a read of it. Oh, yeah. I mean, you probably don't want to know. Uh, if I'm honest, mate, I'm fairly disorganised. Uh, <laughs> in the nicest way possible. Shock. Um, listen, I'm I'm a I'm a salesperson uh, who likes the sound of his own voice, and that's why he does a podcast as well. But um, yeah, I don't have a zero mail inbox. I do not have nicely filed away folders. Um, mine's on a very, you know, kind of need to do basis, almost like that person who said you know, kind of just read the ones at the top, um, leave a few tabs open of emails that I need to kind of action. And then towards the end of the day, if that, if I'm just left my inbox window open, it means I've actioned everything. And that's kind of it, really. Um, and for the benefit of everyone listening, I still have a pad and a pen um, that I have a to-do list on. And that's what I use, really. Um, although I will go back on one point. I prefer if someone emails me rather than Teams and stuff yeah. because yeah i was having this chat with someone the other day teams has turned into whatsapp because you're getting put into groups left right and center people are then messaging on those groups they don't appear on your chat kind of straight away and it's just like if i go into my teams now so i'm clicking on it i am in one two three four i'm in 12 groups and i've got 46 messages unread oh but obviously Maybe it should be updated for, well, for, for yeah. Well, obviously Team I'm not, Zero. Yeah, I know. Well, obviously I'm not that important because they haven't got to me directly. But yeah, it's just it's just turning into like WhatsApp, really. Teams is. Um, so yeah, that's, that's an interesting point. Like Teams, I sorry WhatsApp, I mute certain groups because mm. you get added to stuff where you're like this actually has very little relevance to me. Well, you get, <laughs> you, you get added to like stag do's and birthdays and you know that sort of thing, and it's always it's always a, a few people on there having a chat and, and I won't name any names because a few of these people on my teams probably listen to this podcast, but it's just a few people having a chat with each other really. And I've uh, muted them. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. But... Any of the Mandy? No, probably not. No, no, no. no, he's, no. He's, Free he's business. Saying, yeah. He's, he's pinned mate. Any, any, any team's message from <laughs> him. He's always at the top, mate. <laughs> <laughs> If he listens, he's going to feel very important. Um, no, but it's, it's interesting because you know, we think about productivity and in, in kind of um, the post, as in it's happened, not it's over, but post-COVID world. Um, each buzz sets off hormonal changes, rather, that add to stress levels. Um, this is according to um, uh, the director of software practice at the University of Western Australia, 
Um, an inbox of more than 20 emails becomes unmanageable. Along with all other communication channels, this becomes overwhelming very quickly, especially in times of high stress. Writer and mother of two, Natalia Barroso, came, became an inbox zero convert after losing important essays. A university student, loss of email compounded her, ex, uh, her existing anxiety and became a catalyst for more throughout the management of her inbox. Um, she presently is working through 28 emails in her inbox, most related to a project she's currently editing, but her husband has in excess of 40,000 in his. He stopped letting her go through in 2019 when she had a mini panic attack over important things lost and hot deal promotions and Bitcoin spam. Mm. How, 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 many, um, how many do you have, just out of interest? So right now, I've got... I've only got 11 in my inbox that are unread i've then got 30 in an in, in a pictures folder and 41 in a tech talks folder which i've got some rules set up for but okay. i've got 4318 in total okay in my inbox every now and then i'll just go through and delete the last so, so many months okay so you're fairly organized then okay i try to be but it's a fair point there are and, and you write and you add to it very genuinely there's a lot of communications channels now mm. that we're expected to keep on top of it's not it's not just email it's teams it's everything else mm. and also I, th I think the expectation of other people on the fact that you should be good at that platform um like people are like oh well i'll put it in a team's channel so oh, how how the hell am i what how am i meant to know how to access this channel yeah what, what, what email, does this you channel teams, mean? You've yeah. got Yammer. Yeah, it's like, oh, well, you know, I'm going to set up a Teams channel so we all have access and can share docs. I'll tell you what, SharePoint as well. I mean, that's another hard thing. I'm a bit old school. Just send it as an attachment. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? <laughs> anyway. I'll be, honest, I'll be with you on that. I'm always like... Oh, it's in SharePoint. Oh shit! Right. Yeah. How do I do that? Again? Yeah, and then and then you know when you go to like click the SharePoint, it's like you have to request access. Oh, what is this? I'm not accessing the bloody nuclear codes, am I? It's just a blimmin' spreadsheet on some numbers. That's <laughs> probably getting um, back into the territory of, of, of a CISO there, though. Yeah, exactly. Anyway, you know, um, yeah, Sarah's probably thinking, you know, no, no, password protection. It's very good. Yeah, encryption. Yeah, access only. Um, but yeah. Numpty sales, sales guy like me is like, look, just leave it all open. Don't worry. Anyone with, <laughs> with good productivity tips for their email inbox, their teams, their yammers, their SharePoints, let us know. Uh, go on on Twitter uh, yeah. at tech double underscore talks. That would always be lovely. Um, right, Akish, I'm going to get this edited and I might have another lie down. You deserve it, mate. You enjoy yourself. Just make sure you're awake for uh, the second episode this week, yeah? Yeah, yeah, I'll try. Yeah. <laughs>